Hey everyone, welcome back to the 24 Faithful Podcast. I'm Bradley Adams, joined once again by Joel Wood. Uh, Joel, we have six more season eight episodes to talk about. Do you feel like we're on an upward curve here? Do you feel like we, we, we've been quite negative for two podcasts here now? Do you feel like we're on on, on the upward slope? We're going to be a bit more positive this week. What do we think? I'm going to try my best to be more positive. Okay. That's all, I, that's all I can say. Okay. Well, that's, that's ideal. Um, if you can do it through our first segment, then that would be wonderful. Um, so, of course, we are talking about episodes 13 through 18, which takes us from 4 a.m. till 10 a.m. A uh, lot of plot, lots of big plot developments happen in this stretch of episodes. So we're going we're gonna to smash through it. Um, starting off with Dana the Double Agent. Now, before last week, we talked about how Bill Prady, the parole officer, had come to CTU to try and find Kevin Wade. Kevin, of course, is dead. Uh, and Dana decides that after Bill Prady tries to go to Hastings and tries to circumvent all of her because she, he realizes that she's actually hiding stuff from him and that she was somehow involved with the heist at the evidence lockup. Um, she kills him, hides him in the little uh, crawl space, the vent thing in CTU, in one of the holding rooms. And it turns out that actually she's a plant working for Samir Mehran, and then we'll, of course, come to learn that she was planted there by the Russians uh, in their involvement with the IRK separatists. So, Dana being a terrorist, surprised? Not if you've watched one season of 24. Or one episode of this season, quite frankly. Um, it's not surprising because it, it harkens back to season one. It's another parallel. Dana is the Nina of season eight. The only difference is you could see this one coming from a mile away. <laughs> okay. So it's, it's... Let's just establish here. Are you trying to suggest that this is better than Nina? <clears throat> what I am suggesting is I saw this one coming from a mile away. Now, was it executed as well as the Nina reveal? Uh, probably not. Um, cause let me, let me be clear. I have no problem with Nina being revealed as a terrorist. Had no problem with that. The issue I had was the, the build up to it. And the fact that in my opinion, it came out of nowhere and there were, made no sense to it. This one, however, it made sense because you could see it coming from episode one. From episode one, you could kind of get the idea that Dana wasn't really who she said she was. Um, from the whole Kevin Wade situation to him revealing that her name was actually Jenny Scott and that she has somewhat of a shady past. So from the early episodes, you could kind of get an idea that she wasn't who she told Cole she was. So when the reveal happened, I can't say that I was surprised. I like Nina better than I like Dana. So there's that. You know, I can't really. But as far as the parallels from season one to season eight, if you watch season one, you can kind of get an idea of what was going on in season eight, in my opinion. So, no, I was not surprised. I was surprised that it took them essentially, what, 
three episodes to find her out. From when from when Prady arrives, you mean? Yeah, from when from when Prady arrives to when, you know, she finally got caught. I think she was helping I think it showed her helping the Russians for like what, one episode or two before she actually got caught? Yeah, so it was at 5 a.m. she called Samir for the first time, and then it was next two episodes that she was helping Samir uh, covertly. And then in the following episode, 7 to 8 a.m., it was um, that was when the reveal happened. So, yeah, just over two hours. And a lot of that as well. A lot of that comes in, like, and it adds to my frustration with this whole storyline, that she's sort of doing it in open view of everyone. Like, she's the, when she's guiding, um, I think it's when they, she's guiding the van, straight away after the reveal and she's on the phone in the main area and like she's not clearly not got headphones in or something like that I, I don't quite know how she's hearing what Samir's saying I don't quite see how she's talking loudly enough for him to hear her on the phone that's held beneath the desk but for no one around to hear uh, and then you end up in sort of like an Among Us situation with Arlo in the uh, in the tech room um, where she's going to kill him and then get saved by he gets he gets saved by the call from Hastings yeah it's uh it's not great I have to say you are right though like in, in terms of the season one because the parallels are very clear beyond the con just the, the general concept of this character that's supposedly really trustworthy really like one of the best they've got that you then look at the actual reveal and quite frankly the escape is very very Nina. In I, I guess it's the point, but shooting the guard, running to the the car park, getting in her car, the CTA agent lover of hers. In season one, it was Jack. In season eight, it's Nina. Uh, sorry, it's Cole. Uh, shooting at her as she's trying to drive away, and then pinning her up against a car or a wall, and and being on the verge of shooting her. It's all it's all very very similar, um, and executed. A lot, lot worse, I would say, because I think we've talked about your your Nina frustrations at length before. But I think, regardless of that, regardless of of where people stand on whether Nina did come out of nowhere too much or not, the fact of this is that it's so far in the other direction that I'd have actually been more surprised if she wasn't working with the terrorists, because you've had, like you said, the 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 Kevin Wade stuff, the fact that she's got a different she's she's actually a different name she's been to prison she was an accessory to murder she's done all of these things she's done all these things today you just you left to a point where you're backed into a corner there's no alternative to this there's no getting away from the the final outcome is dana's working with the terrorists so it just it's frustrating how far in the other direction it goes that there's just no surprise to it i mean basically what we're saying is that everybody in ctu is idiots that's what we're saying because she was right there. She was not even what, not even five feet away from Chloe. You know, to be that close. I mean, I, I guess she could probably pass it off that maybe she had an earpiece in her ear or something like that. Okay, I can buy that. But at the same time, you know, Hastings is walking right by her at several points during these conversations. So <clears throat> it's, it's, it's like, can we make it a little bit more discreet? Because she's, she's helping these terrorists and, you know, she's getting, she's getting called in every which direction and she's not really, 
It's like the situation with Kevin Wade. You know, she's been secretive pretty much all day. So at some point, somebody at CTU has to think that something's going on. <laughs> because even with the Kevin Wade situation, she left, she came back, she was secretive, she was constantly walking away from her station. It's not really well executed. I like the potential of it. The, of course, you know, CTU has to have a moment. You know, that's like, that's like one of the whiteboard things that you have in the beginning of every season. You've got to have a mole CTU. If you don't have a mole in the government, it's not a CTU season. It's not 24. So from that respect, I understood it. And she's probably the only one within CTU that would make sense because anybody else, it would just look stupid. So I like that aspect of it. I just don't think it was very well executed in terms of making her out to be an intelligent villain. Because if we boil right down to it, she was not a very intelligent villain. I mean, Nina, you know, my, my frustrations with Nina aside, at least she was, at least she walked away from everybody when she took that phone call at the end of, at the end of the episode that revealed that she was working with the Drazies. Dana, (laughs) Dana didn't really do that. I mean, she was talking to him right there in plain view of everybody. And on the top on top of that, she was talking to them on a phone that was issued to her <laughs> by CTU. So you're using a CTU issued phone to make this call. So from that respect, it just it didn't really make very much sense to me. Yeah, it doesn't quite fit with the stuff that Hastings was saying early in the season about how she's the best and everything doesn't really track with that it also this whole storyline brings out i think one of the worst lines of the series which is dana saying that isn't it always and in the reference being about money as to why she's doing this and you i mean come on really it's uh, so tiresome so dull and in the episode it just felt like it's so uninspiring and so just just like I feel like I'm trying to remember when the show felt fresh when I see that scene and that line that it doesn't any at that point anymore, which is uh, fairly sad. Yeah, that was one of the uh, one of the cringeworthy lines. Um, the whole interrogation, the whole interrogation scene just felt off. You know, whenever whenever there's a whenever there's a mole, you know, or somebody turning against the government. The the interrogation the interrogation scenes always some way or another revert back to one of two things. Either money or immunity. Those seem to be the two things that they always want. And they never get them. <laughs> so, I mean, it never works out that way. This was technically at the time supposed to be the last season. So I understood why they wanted to try to make as many similarities to season one as they could. Um, But at the same time, they could have freshened it up just a little bit, just a little bit. Um, As far as, you know, the interrogation, the reasoning, you know, things like that. It just, it, it felt off. And, the storyline itself had potential 
to be very good in its execution. I don't think they really played up the relationship with Cole enough. Um, like when when Nina when Nina was captured back in season one, you know her past with Jack was central to the plot. I mean, from from the time Nina was captured to basically the time she died, her past with Jack was central to the plot. But once Dana was captured, and once they talked Cole down from killing her, his relationship with Dana kind of took a back seat because they wanted to feature Jack, which I understood it. But at the same time, you had spent the previous half, previous dozen episodes playing up this relationship. And then once she turns into a villain, you just kind of give her the back seat. And that's another thing that I didn't really like about it. Yeah, agreed. Well, you mentioned similarities to previous seasons. And um, our next bit of plot actually has a very similar uh, storyline to one of the previous ones as well. That's the trade for President Hassan. And this is very, it's very Bierko offering uh, Logan and out with the nerve gas if he gives up Suvorov's motorcade route and puts Suvorov up for assassination. So the crux of this being, of course, that Samir offers President Taylor a trade, give them Hassan, and they won't detonate the, uh, quote, radiological dispersal device in Manhattan. That was a line that frustrated me as well, that clarification. It just didn't sink at all. But um, Taylor, being the uh, moral compass that she is, decided that she's not going to do this. This is this is not an option. Uh, but General Brucker decides with Rob Weiss that they are going to act and send in a covert team to snatch Hassan. Uh, that fails because Jack is quite good. And instead, uh, what happens is Hassan finds out about the plot and gives himself up because he is the noble, noble president who is going to do that. Um, and also, meanwhile, in all of this, uh, Ethan has a heart attack when he discovers the plot. Um, let's start with that because it's the, one of the worst things that I kind of want to get it out of the way before we go into some things that are good. Um, up there with the worst plots this show's ever done? I just didn't see the need for it. I mean, we're, we're, already, we're already knee deep into season eight. Did you really need to have Ethan have a heart attack? No. I mean, it's another plot. <laughs> it's another plot that didn't really have any follow-up. I mean, once he, you know, once he was treated and, you know, found to be okay, it was pretty much dropped. I just felt like you could have locked him up in the room or whatever and not had, you know, kind of kind of like how they did with uh with Lynn um, back in, I think it was season two or three. Season two, yeah. Lynn Kresge. Yeah, how they locked her up in the room and just kept her there until they did what they needed to do with David. Mm. You know, they could have done a situation like that. They didn't have to, you know have him have a heart attack. I just felt like it was, I mean, unless the plan was to kill Ethan off, which obviously it wasn't. Because the plan with Lynn was to write her out of the show. So that that fall at the end was kind of her way, kind of their way of writing her out without having her just disappear. The plan obviously wasn't to write Ethan out of the show. So having him have a heart attack only to come back from it um, and then not 
really mention it the rest of the season. It just felt like it felt like another plot device for the sake of a plot device. It's drama for the sake of drama. And sometimes that's good. A lot of times it isn't. And I think this was one of the times that having drama for the sake of drama was just not, was just a kind of a miss. It's one of the scenes in this season that makes, that goes some way to making me question whether this is actually worse than season six. It, it's just, it's so stupid. It's really, really stupid. And you're right, they kind of, Ethan gets treated and he's conscious and talking and seems completely fine just in a wheelchair and bedridden for, in about an hour and a half time. And then about an hour after that, he's up and walking and doing everything fine. And okay, great. You know, I'm, I'm really happy because I like Ethan, but come on, seriously. Um, so that's not great. I do like in this though that uh, President Taylor is very steadfast in not giving up a song. That speech he gives to all of the cabinet members is really, really good. Uh, so that's a positive to come out of this. Um, but in terms of other positives that are quite positive, uh, the actual assault and the stuff with Hassan, you know, we talked about Hassan before and you sort of highlighted the fact that he's actually not great as a, as a person and this sort of fascination, I guess, this, this universal love for him among the people that we're meant to support rather than, of course, the, the separatists that it kind of isn't very, it isn't very justified given some of the stuff he's done. But then this goes some way to rectifying that. And this goes some way to suggesting why everyone thinks that he is the character that he is. And you, you can't argue with it. I think it's, I think it's fascinating. Taylor knows, first of all, that he's going to, if he knew about the trade and the offer, he would instantly give himself up. Um, she knows from obviously months of, of, pre-season stuff off camera that that's the sort of person he is and we learn that very quickly here and yeah I, I just I really enjoy it I really do I liked it I like this particular angle um, I probably would have liked it a little bit better if they didn't spend a season and a half you know basically telling me that you know he was a piece of garbage but for this particular storyline, I enjoyed it. And I think it shows that even though he may have issues, he may have problems, he may have um, certain moral hindrances, that when it comes down to protecting his country or protecting innocent lives, that's a line that he's not willing to cross. You know, he will give himself up if it means protecting, you know, his country or um, protecting the peace agreement that he's working on with President Taylor. So from that, from that respect, you kind of feel, you kind of feel like he's got pride in his country which is always good for any leader. And he's, he's willing to s sacrifice himself to basically protect American citizens. Because we're not, in, we're not in, on his turf here. You know, he technically doesn't have to give himself up. He gives himself up to protect 
American citizens, essentially. Um, which I thought was very, very noble and kind of did, it went a long way to rectify some of his earlier season mistakes. Because if you get right down to it, his affair, his affair with the with the journalist, you know, that was wrong. The rounding up all these all these people that might or might not be working against him, that was probably ill-advised. But at the end of the day, he was right about Terran. You know, even though he got criticized at the time for arresting one of his most loyal um, subjects, when you get right down to it, he was right. So maybe we should trust his judgment a little bit more. You know, maybe he's not as paranoid as we thought he was when he first started the way. So from, from that respect, I kind of shifted a little bit um, as far as my opinion. I still don't like how he was portrayed earlier in the season as far as this guy that we're supposed to root for, but he's cheating on his wife and arresting everybody that's close to him. And, you know, it's, I just didn't like his earlier season. But from the time that Taryn was revealed to actually be working with the terrorist up until the, the trade um, happened, it kind of did, it kind of did a lot to kind of shift my opinion of him because they, they tried their best from that point on to kind of make him more likable. Because, I mean, let's be honest, the guy was not a very likable character for the first half, for the first half of, or excuse me, the first fourth of the season. So they did a lot to kind of make him a more likable character. And I thought that, I thought that it worked. It was, um, I didn't think that after about six or seven episodes, I didn't think there was very much they could do to make him a likable character. But they did a they did a pretty decent job to make him, you know, not completely redeem himself, but kind of let you know that there is another side uh, to President Hassan. And I thought I thought that was I thought that was really good. I think a lot of the um the reason that I was so sort of taken aback when you said about this two weeks ago was partly because of scenes like this. And, and this is the sort of thing that sticks into my mind as to why he's so good. So yeah, I, like you said, I, th- this does go a long way to, to redeeming him. Um, some of the early season stuff is still not great, even in, in reflection, but this is wonderful. I love his, I love him throughout the assault. Uh, I, I really like it. It's such a simple line, but whatever you think is right, Mr. Bauer, that the, the sort of the the respect and the trust in Jack that he has it's it's so wonderful. Him saving Jack is so wonderful, and then you get to him being faced with Samir, and Enel Kapoor is is so so good. Uh, I I absolutely love that scene where they reminisce about the takeover of Abul Province when he was a general, and Samir was a soldier. That's a really wonderful scene. Um. And yeah, I, it kind of ma- it makes you forget a lot of the the stuff, the the affair and and the imprisonment of various innocent people, because this is, like I said, this is the crux of who he is, and this is what everyone everyone positive in the world sees him as. 
So it's nice that the, the show kind of finally gets around to showing that fully. Um, but we do get into the, once the trade happens, we get into another similar plot, which is that everything about uh, Samir holding Hassan and the quest to rescue him. And, he, you know, this goes as specific as from the, the plot generally to sort of the editing and the timing of everything. It's almost identical in every way to Hela in season four. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think this is this is really good. We spend time with Samir trying to torture Hassan. That's quite nice, albeit fairly brutal. And him deciding to read the statement instead. And then he reads the statement. And it, you know, I, I'm a little bit geeky about this stuff, but the way that it's at the end, as Jack and Renee and the CTU team are getting into the building, how you've got the split screens of Samir with Hassan and you've got, but, but it's being watched on the CTU feed rather than you're not in the room with them. And Jack sort of making his way through the building and you've got the audio of the, the video feed over the top as well. It's all really, really tense. It, it's so, so enjoyable. I think I'd, I'd be very confident in saying, in fact, I am certain in saying that the twist to kill Hassan, the, fact that the recording the recording that was going out on the internet was delayed i guess i haven't quite worked out the logic of this because the timing doesn't match up to saying it was fully pre-recorded that clearly doesn't work so whether they you know streamed it three minutes delayed or whatever uh but i'll let that slide because it's such a, a tense eight minutes or so it's so impressive and the twist itself that it comes in and, and jack's there it's the first twist of the season which lands at all, and it just lands as perfectly as 24 has ever done a twist, I think. Um, I know that's fairly high praise, but that it's it's you get to this point, and, and that's one of the things here, that the twist works because you know what the outcome should be, or you know what you expect the outcome to be in a normal circumstance. You expect in this scenario... I don't I can't remember a time really where Jack's had anything similar to this and not succeeded in his mission. He very rarely fails in any mission, but certainly one like this, it always goes well for him. He always saves the day at the last second. And aside from my standing point of Sean Callery being a genius with the music, the actual shooting of it and the 15 seconds between the terrorist being shot and you hear the audio playing and Jack saying, no, no, no. And sort of you having the same reaction up until you see the shot of Hassan's dead body. It's it's so good. I cannot describe to you how enjoyable that was, even on, I don't know, what, the 10th rewatch I've seen this. And, you know, it's 11 years ago that I know exactly what's going to happen. And it's just so, so gutting, I think is probably the best word for it. It's, it's, it's a situation where it's like you said, you always expect jack to kind of save the day at the same time um i'm trying to think of if there was ever a situation like this in previous seasons where he didn't save the day no i don't think there is i i can't think of one quite frankly no i don't i don't think there was um i'll probably i'll probably think of one once the podcast is over knowing me <laughs> um <laughs> But it's it's kind of 
it's kind of coy on 24 riders parts. Um, it's kind of clever um, because, you know, Fox had this long-standing um, edict to the 24 riders that you cannot kill a sitting president on the show. They killed two non. Well, they they killed one sitting president off screen. They just didn't actually. To be fair, they killed two on two two sitting presidents off screen: Keeler and Wayne Palmer. But was Wayne Palmer the president at the time? Because remember, yes. Noah Daniels had taken over. No, so was Wayne, Palmer... Wayne, Wayne had taken back over. Remember, Daniels was about to resign. But it's beside the point. You are right that Fox did have this thing of no American president can be, no sitting president can be killed on the show. So they kind of had to work around on that. So, well, we're not going to kill a sitting American president. We'll just <laughs> we'll just kill a sitting president from another country. But that doesn't even exist in the real world. Yeah, from a from a fictional from a fictional country that. So, I, from that respect, I kind of I kind of chuckled a little bit because I was like, okay, well, they can't kill a sitting American president, so we're just gonna kill a sitting president from a fictitious country. Okay, I can buy that. The scene itself was very tense, um, especially to me, who's, you know, I've, I've seen every season, you know, 10 times already. But it still gets me every time because the scene plays out so well from the music to the the acting, the you know, it's the final season and having Jack just everything goes right. He always saves the day. It's just it's part of what I was saying earlier about freshening things up. You know, not making everything exactly the same way it was before. So I thought this was a nice refresher to show that maybe Jack is not who he was before you know he's human he's not perfect so i thought i thought that was that was great it did a lot to it did a lot to redeem the hassan character and i thought that that particular scene other than you know the scene at the end of the at the end of the season which we'll talk about next week where jack just goes on this killing spree and just kills everybody other than that scene, this is probably my favorite scene of the entire series. Or, excuse me, season. Um, because it just, everything played out from the, from the time that Hassan, from the time that the trade was completed to the time that the Hassan character met his demise. I thought everything about that was written as well as it could possibly have been written. And you're you're smirking, and I'm trying to figure out why. No, I, I'm in total agreement. Um, it's one of the few scenes like scenes like this, you know, uh, action scenes, tense uh, recovery type scenes. It's one of the few that I can watch endlessly. I think, and still have the same level of dread. I guess would be a word for it. Um, it is. It is just absolutely wonderful. Uh, but from that. A lot of things come of this. So you you point out there actually about Jack being human and not being perfect. And that actually made me think, because what happens this time, and, and you're right, that that's, that is what comes out of this. 
because he doesn't say for some, but that's, it, it is very well handled in sort of there being nothing he can do about it. It wasn't anything that they could control. But what comes of it is actually that he's very affected by Hassan's death. And it means that he is out. He doesn't go back for the debrief. He's he's broken up by it. Um, and then him and Renee go back to his apartment. And not too long after, having been potentially recognized by Renee at the scene of murdering Samir, Pavel Tokarev decides to take out Renee for fear of getting pointed the finger at and exposing the Russian involvement. Um, This is really sad. And it's another one of these eight-minute sequences that, again, I feel like I could watch endlessly and it's still tense and it's still emotional and it's still gripping and gutting and heartbreaking. And it, it comes down to the same sort of thing I just said, that... There is a there is a moment where only Renee's death is possible, and and you realise that whether or not you're sort of watching it for the first time or me rewatching it and, and knowing what's coming, there is a point where I thought, well, there's no there's no getting out of this. There's no scenario based on the writing so far and what we've seen so far up until sort of eight fifty four a.m. There's no other alternative than Renee dies in the from this. And then there's a brief moment on the split screen, the closing split screen, where it feels like, okay, maybe she doesn't die right now. If we cut away to President Taylor or we cut away to Chloe or to wherever, to Logan going to Novakovic or, or whatever it might be, she won't die right now. And then maybe she, if, she, if she gets through the next two minutes, she survives. And then it cuts back to Chloe calling Jack and you just, you're back to Renee, has to Renee dies here and there's no alternative to it. And it's so, so tragic. And Kiefer Sutherland, some of his best work is done here, possibly his best work in the series. And I I love it. I, I love it. And it's, well, I say I love it. I hate that Renee dies because I like Renee, but man, what a scene. What a sequence. The scene itself was was great. The aftermath of the scene was great. What I don't like is the fact that, as I've stated before, the 24 tropes of, well, Jack is romantically involved with somebody, so it's time to kill him. Yeah. How many romantic interests has, you know, has died already? I mean, what? Three, four. Uh, I would say, I would say, two, all but two of them. I think actually, all but technically, all but three, because you've got um, Marilyn Bauer. Much like, just want to block her out of my memory. But you also had Diane at the start of season five, and uh, Kate Warner as well. So it's actually not as bad as you think. Not really, until you think that you know we had uh, we had Terry, we had Terry, we had Terry in season one. All the major, all all the major ones. I- you got to count Nina. Yes, because they had a thing. Then you got Audrey. Then you got Renee. Um, I may be leaving out somebody. I don't know. I don't know. Claudia, technically, in season three. Yeah, 
cloudy in yeah. season three. So it's but you but all the major ones being Neat and Terry, Renee, primarily Audrey, as we'll come to in Live Another Day, and I guess Nina. All the all the ones that that twenty four spent time developing, all the relationships that twenty four spent, you know, time because all the ones all the ones that you mentioned lasted maybe an episode or two. Um, I mean, the one with Kate Warner, we didn't even know they were a thing until the first episode of the next season. When they were done. <laughs> yeah, when they were done. So, <laughs> so uh, kind of hard for me to even count that one. But um, <clears throat> so it's, it's kind of a, a thing where you kind of roll your eyes a little bit <clears throat> because, you know, it's another, I mean, can't he just have one? I mean, can't he just have one love interest? I mean, Nope, he can't. I mean, if 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 that's the case, then just don't give him one, because as soon as because as soon as you give him a love interest, it automatically pops into a a normal twenty four viewer's head that, okay, eventually this person's going to die. So it's just a matter of when, not if. As soon as I as soon as I saw, you know, even watching it for the first time, as soon as I saw Renee come back. And I saw them kind of rekindle things between her and Jack. And I saw how kind of off the deep end she was from from the very first episode she appeared in. Uh, you kind of get an idea that she's probably not going to make it through the season. You kind of get this idea that she's probably going to die at some point. But at the same time, she was probably, out of all the literatures, she was probably the most like Jack. And I thought that they could have probably, probably should have kept her around. Um, but with it, you know, like I said at the time, with it being the final season, I guess figure why not? Let's just kill one more of his love interest for old time's sake, I guess. I don't know. But I just, the scene itself was great. <clears throat> and then the aftermath of, you know, Jack just basically losing it. I thought that was great. I just wish they could have done something other than going back to the, well, Jack has a love interest, so let's just put a bullet in her head. Well, to be fair, they've not done that since Terry, because of course Audrey will come later. So yeah, it's not, it's not, um, it's not too common a theme. But it's a, but it's another callback to season one. Yeah, exactly. and it's and it's and it's one that, and it's a and it's a callback that I'm not sure was needed. Hmm. No, I think that's fair enough. But what it does do, as you mentioned, is it does fuel one of the more exciting and different, I guess, would be a way to describe it, uh, plots of the series, which is that Jack decides to go on for a revenge hunt. Um, I mentioned Kiefer there about in terms of Renee dying, but he's so, so good at this side of Jack as well when he's on this rampage. We've said it before, um, the season one finale, as we mentioned sort of there, um the, uh, the docks is fabulous the takedown of logan in season five and some of his stuff in season six with with heller at the end of the season absolutely brilliant but it kind of goes next level here and yeah I, I i really enjoy this plot by and large i think there are parts of it and and we'll talk a lot more about this next week of course because it sort of bleeds in um, but just at the starting blocks, I think it's it's quite entertaining. I like that Jack has this this approach. This is very Jack. 
It's very uh, laser focused. He knows what he wants. He knows how to get it and where to go. The chat with Sergei Bizayev is quite fun. Then his interrogation of Dana is entertaining, if not only for the fact that he slams her head into the table, which is quite funny. I think it's telling as well, actually. One thing I did pick up was that he didn't thank anyone for saying sorry to him about Renee's death, not even to the president, um, which sort of sums up where he is. But then what we have is the, the scene that sets everything ablaze and sets up the final six episodes and damages a lot of things. Because that is the scene, and we'll talk about Charles Logan in a second, but the scene between Taylor and Jack at CTU, in which she tells him to stand down from looking into the Russian involvement and from questioning Dana Walsh, because it's going to derail the peace process. Everything about that screams Charles Logan. And it's the scene that sends everything off off a cliff, because without it, None of none of Jack's rampage happens. Everything's calm. You know, the peace agreement doesn't happen, but the carnage stops. And in that one scene, Jack just that's it for Jack. There is no there is no going back after that. Because I mean, Jack, you gotta think of it from Jack's point of view. I mean, all everything that he's given to this to this country and everything that and Renee essentially risked her life to come back and help this process and help them bring down the, the conspirators of the day's events. And she got a bullet for it. And Jack is, Jack is to the point now where he's starting to, he's starting to feel like Tony in season seven. Like I've given everything for this country and for what, you know, they're not, they're telling me to stand down. I think that, is to the point where Jack has just finally said, you know, enough is enough. And, you know, he's always done what's best for the country. He's always, he's always done what was best for the president, for the presidency. He's always looked out for the right thing. And I think this was his breaking point because it's like, he's, He's given everything to this country and all it's done is taken everything from him. So I think that was the moment where he decided that he's going to do the right thing, but he's going to do it his way. Um, And I think that President Taylor, she had pretty much been on the right side of everything up until this point throughout the entire, the entirety of season seven throughout the entirety of season eight up until this point. And I think this is the, this is the point where she let policy um, affect what was really good for the country. And I think this is where President Taylor kind of started to take a nosedive, really, character-wise, um, because this is not something that we've been accustomed to. Because the President Taylor of the previous, you know, season and three quarters wouldn't do this. So it's it's kind of it's kind of two characters going in two different directions that the fans of twenty four are not used to. Um, Taylor doing something that's completely different from 
anything we've seen the previous season and three quarters. And then Jack going on a revenge spree, which is something that we've not been accustomed to seeing in the previous seven seasons. So I thought that that was a interesting character shift uh, for the, for those two characters. Saunders and Henderson and Tony warned him that a day like this would come, and it it did. Um, I think you know Jack runs out of options here, doesn't he? He runs out of options of of wanting to get justice through normal means and decides to go on rev- on a revenge hunt. But I'm glad you pointed out Taylor because that was one of my one of my notes here that it destroys her presidency that scene. And it also destroys her entire character. I think it's as big a character assassination as Tony turning evil. I, I, I genuinely think it's on that level because you, you're rolling your eyes. But in terms of, like I said before with Tony, that Tony couldn't kill Henderson when given the chance. This was the guy who murdered his wife, but he couldn't do it. And when we come back and, and see what he does in season seven, it's the complete opposite of everything we know about Tony, who for all his faults, you know, innocent life he would not directly hurt and what happens here with the tailor i mean they point it out so many times throughout the the run of the the last few episodes this is a woman who sent her own daughter to prison in instead of seeing justice not served this is a woman who as a result of that lost her marriage and you know her son died in 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 being part of his her presidency so all of her morals everything about her she is kind of I don't want to preempt David because we we love David and, and David is the the great president, but she's sort of the perfect president from the sense of, well, this is what you want in a leader. This is what you want. You want the she has the conviction to make these strong decisions, and some of them Rob Wise and, and General Brock are question obviously, but there's a there's a moral morality to it, and she's she's very always she has these beliefs. She sticks to them when she says something you trust that that's what she will do. And she goes against that here. And yeah, it, you say it was the politics. It's, and it's going to bring in Charles Logan because it is that Logan-esque wanting of the limelight and that Logan-esque desire to have what they want. Logan wanted all that he wanted in season five and, and went to ridiculous criminal lengths to achieve it for his country and taylor very similar very very similar that she wants the peace deal she knows the peace deal will benefit everyone but despite the fact that it's so clearly gone she just she she breaks every code she has um in locking that jack down and, and and shutting him down but this kind of does breed into to charles logan because he comes back and i mean i hate him here which is a turnaround because in season five, I, you know, you don't like him, but you, you kind of admire him as a character. I think he is really good. And then in season six, I really enjoyed him for those four episodes. He, it felt like he was a changed man. It felt like there was a lot of development there and, and potentially, you know, cr- criticisms of uh, the development from him being the, the bog standard good president to being the criminal mastermind people who suggest that there wasn't quite the logic from step point A to point B, it kind of felt like that they were rectifying this a little bit in re- reversing that. And then it comes in here and from minute one, he's just slimy and awful again and it continues and he gets worse and he's just horrible. 
anytime I see Charles Logan, you know, I'm pretty happy with it. But at the same time, it's another indictment of the nosedive that the President Taylor character takes. Because at no at no point, I mean, even I mean, even though his transgressions were never made public um, because of his deal, President Taylor would know about it. The fact that she willingly brings him in to kind of consult, um, which obviously causes a rift with Ethan. It just it doesn't sit well with what we know about President Taylor. I mean, yeah, she she worked with Bill and Tony and Jack in season seven against her better judgment. But at the same time, at that time, Jack, Tony, and Bill had a reputation um, of being on the right side of the law. Charles Logan doesn't. So it's it was kind of a disconnect for me. I mean, on one hand, it kind of, you know, they kind of made sense with the Logan character because, you know, it's revealed that he was working with uh, Yuri Silveroff. So they kind of played back to the tight relationship that they've had since season five. So in that respect, it made sense. But I felt like there was a lot of missed opportunity. Like, I don't think that I don't think that they utilize the Logan character the best way that they should um, because the entire time you never had the, you never got the vibe that Logan was ever going to succeed. I mean, in season five, there were points in time where you thought that he might actually get away with this, but in season and season eight, you never really got that, that inclination that, Okay, he's he's gonna he's finally gonna get away with this. He's finally gonna put Jack away, and I just felt like the suspense factor wasn't there, um, like it was in season five, or even season six. You know, even when it looked like he was a changed man, you, up until the point where Martha stabbed him. I mean, you kind of got the idea that okay, maybe they're maybe they're trying to redeem the Logan character, and at the end of season six. That's the inclination that you got because Logan didn't really do anything in season six that would lead you to believe he had any nefarious means or any nefarious motives. Um, So that's the last that we saw him until season eight, when all of a sudden he's back to being the, the slime ball who's trying to take over the country. So I thought that that was a bit of a disconnect. I mean, they didn't really follow up on anything that happened in season six. We never found out, like, was that, was season six all a plan? Was he trying to, you know, was he trying to act like he had changed so he could, you know, be free? Or was he, you know, in season eight, when he comes back, he's automatically a slime ball again. So we never, we never, they never filled in the gaps between what happened in season six to where we are now in season eight. And I thought that that was, that was one of the things that was kind of missing for me. I think I think I read it as, or so rather, I took it as being that Daniel's pardoning him was sort of the the thing that did it. That that meant he was he was scot free. He didn't have to worry about re, um, repentance anymore. So that was uh, that was what freed him 
uh, morally and, and and the way that he acts. Yeah, I hate Noah Daniels for that. Yeah, he well, we've spoken at length about Noah Daniels not being good anyway. Um it's interesting you mentioned the suspense thing because I think actually he's a bad guy for sixteen episodes in total, if you think the final eight of season five and then he's in eight here. And at no point is he in control ever. Whereas in season five, when he's working behind the scenes, we don't know that he um, is working with the terrorists or, or rather working against his country. If you know, you get the impression that he is in control, although actually quite frankly, the way that Henderson handles David Palmer and all of that stuff that, uh, you know, Walt Cummings, there is actually probably a sense that he's not in control at any point ever in, in the run of the show that he is a villain. So it kind of tracks, it, it, it does kind of track for me with that, but you are right that it, it, it is a bit weird that, I mean, he's got this, this arrogance that he always has, but this, this optimism, this overconfidence and everything keeps going wrong for him, which in a way is quite funny because no one wants to see Logan succeed. Um, but yeah, I, I bought into his redemption story in season six. I, I, I found that fascinating and this feels not very fascinating you mentioned Ethan. I think it's quite funny that he gets sanctimonious about Logan, quote, compromised, having, co- quote, compromised her hopelessly, which is really funny because it was Ethan that pointed out that he'd been leaving messages and suggested that actually you should talk to Charles Logan. Probably not a good idea, Ethan. Um, but we do get one of, well, I say one of, it's, it's definitely the most pivotal scene in this season. Arguably, given the impact it has on the ending and the way that that plays into everything we've seen over eight seasons arguably one of the most pivotal scenes in the show which is the the argument between ethan logan and taylor about uh whether they should grant dana walsh immunity whether they need to expose the russians involvement ethan of course being on the side of it's like having the devil and the angel on your shoulder that that old thing ethan is the one saying do the right thing expose the Russians, let's get this out on the table. And Logan is the devil and saying, no, no, don't wreck the peace deal. Let's keep this hidden. Do the right thing for everyone in the world by not exposing this. And it goes on for ages, actually. I was surprised. I, I sort of vaguely remembered it, but I was surprised by how long it went on for. And it's it's so gripping. It's really intense. And as much as I hate Logan, Gregory Ipsin never lets us down with his performances. Cherry Jones, one of her best performances uh, from her two seasons. And it's an absolutely fascinating discussion that you, you kind of get left hanging with for 10 minutes because Taylor goes to CTU and you have to wait till then to find out what they decided. But it is an absolutely fascinating discussion um, and speaks to one of those things I've said before that when they have these sort of quiet morality type discussions and and, and plots like this 24 can be really effective it doesn't have to be all guns and grenades all the time these quiet things that have such a monumental impact on everything else if they get it right it it works i like the argument and then once you realize what's going on you realize why logan doesn't want to expose the russians because he's working with them so (laughs) in that respect you kind of you start to see why he doesn't want to expose the Russians. It's also to the point where it's another indictment of the president Taylor character. These last half dozen episodes, 
because at no point in season seven or, you know, the first dozen or so episodes of season eight, would you ever think that President Taylor would go against Ethan? Ethan was her trusted confidant for two seasons now. You know, they teased that there might be more to Ethan and President Taylor a couple of times, um, but it's kind of something that you didn't really want to see. But they kind of, but more than anything, they teased that Taylor and Ethan have about as close of a friendship as a president and one of her staff could have. And for her to basically side with Logan in this situation was kind of, it kind of left a disconnect for me. Um, the scene itself was great. You know, I like I like the, the the scene and the and the acting and the, the dialogue, but it's the the purpose of the scene kind of left a little bit to be desired because if you've seen season seven and most of season eight, you would never think that Taylor would go against Ethan. So that that was the only part that I didn't like, but the scene itself was very good. God help you if you make me regret this, is the line that Taylor delivers to Logan. <laughs> and, well, as we will discuss at length next week, she does regret it. As we could predict. Yes, we could indeed predict that. Maybe she should have stuck with her uh, her original character of morality. But that is a discussion for next week. Um, thank you all for listening. Uh, as always, there is ways to get in touch with us and give us some uh, comments on anything we've said or anything in the show that you've observed either from episodes we've already discussed or ones that we'll talk about in future of course the next podcast we'll talk about the final six episodes of season eight so plenty to talk about there including the ending or the original ending i should say so if you do have thoughts then the way to get in touch with us is via twitter at the 24 podcast you can go to 24faithful.com and leave us a little note or you can leave us a voicemail at 405-771-0567. But as I said, next week we will be back to talk about what was in the original run back in 2010, the final six episodes ever of 24. Um, do join us again next week. 